Hello and welcome to the Chaos Publishing Podcast, helping you make your mark in the tabletop gaming industry. My name is Miles Ratcliffe, games designer, co-founder and director of Chaos Publishing Limited. Today we invite Kim Breback onto the show to discuss international shipping and fulfillment on Kickstarter. This is episode 3, Pitching to the World. Hi Kim, thanks for being on the show. It's great to have you here. That's great to be here. Okay, could you introduce yourself, what projects you're getting involved with and your position in the industry? Well, I'm pretty new in the industry. My name's Kim Breback and I'm just uh, yet another gamer who wants to be a designer. <laughs> so um, I've been trying to design games for about four years now and I've made, uh, this is kind of the third game I've properly designed and one I've been very serious about. So I've made a game called Monstrous and it's on Kickstarter now and it's a dexterity card game where you throw your Greek, wrathful Greek god throwing cards on the table trying to get uh, the, the faithless mortals back into the cities, score faith and um, restore faith in the pantheon. So I've just tried to make a really fun light game but really deluxe. So first time game for me, very, very intense process. So industry-wise, I don't really have a position yet. I come from a design group called Secret Base Games and I'm partnering up with an Australian company who's now moving into publishing games as well. They're called Good Games, Good Games Australia, and they've got a US arm as well, Good Games USA. And they really want to make good quality games and get them out there and probably use Kickstarter as a bit of a launch pad for, for doing that from Australia because it's quite difficult to get on the international stage with Australian design games. So what got you started? Just a love of games and I think this it's a historical time in board game development. You know, they call it the golden age of gaming where so many people have grown up playing games. I certainly did from a very, very young age. You know, the first games I love that I can remember that I loved uh, are card flicking games in primary school where you'd get football cards and flick them around the playground trying to knock over other football cards and take the rare ones and stuff like that. So we used to make up all sorts of games around that kind of thing. So from that very early young age, I had a, a really great love of games. It's just continued on through my whole life, you know, the usual litany of games that I don't need to run through. You can probably guess them all. <laughs> um, and it got to a point where I started to play games some games as an adult and, and see the problems with games and want to solve those problems. You know, a group of friends and yourself probably have house-ruled quite a few games in your times to say, oh, I don't like that, let's play it this way. And that just evolves into game design. I think other things like playing Magic the Gathering are, are game design 101 kits. Basically, Magic the Gathering with the metagame in Magic, it forces you to become a bit of a game designer because you're actually making a constrained set of components like a 60-card deck that functions in a different way than other ones. So you're kind of experimenting there with the very first steps of making a game. And I did a lot of that in my time. So um, you do see quite a few ex-Magic players have become designers. And obviously a lot of designers will have played Magic at some time. So I think Magic, The Gathering, and other CCGs probably set off a lot of certain mental processes in a lot of people's minds to help them develop skills or the desire to become a game designer. So. Yeah, that's me as well. I grew up playing Magic, and deck building teaches you a lot about game design, doesn't it? So, moving on to the main topic of the show, what I wanted to talk to you about is shipping and fulfillment for Kickstarter, specifically. You've actually written a few in-depth articles about this on your website, secretbasegames.com. So I'd like to start off with some general impressions. What do you think of shipping and fulfillment in Kickstarter at the moment? Well, the first thing is... um. 
I see shipping as the sort of the frontier of Kickstarter. The methodologies around how to run a Kickstarter campaign are, are really reasonably advanced now and there's so many people doing it that there are core methodologies and experimental ones and they're working really really well in terms of pushing new boundaries about how to do things shipping not so much but for 50 percent of people that want to buy things on kickstarter or order things or back things on kickstarter shipping's a major deal you just try turning it around to a u.s audience and say we're going to charge you 20 dollars shipping and you watch what would happen the project would absolutely fail because 50% of the, the Kickstarter audience is US and they have no tolerance for high shipping rates. But 50% of the rest of the world kind of has to because of the historical evolution of the way Kickstarter's managed the logistical process of getting things made and then shipped to America and then shipped internally at a cheap rate and externally at a very expensive rate. So you'd be aware coming from England and, and but from a Australia, it's even worse. We pay the highest possible shipping rate. So say we're looking at, say, a $30 game. I use my game as a scenario. If I look at other $30 games on Kickstarter, it's not uncommon for me to see an additional $20 of, say, shipping fees, maybe 15 at the best, added on to that. So what is really behind those numbers is that a $30 game, in truth, already has probably about $8 of shipping fees included in it for a US domestic audience, somewhere between five and eight. A lot of US backers, uh, creators would say it was about $5 of shipping, but in fact, the shipping costs are everything from the factory to the backer, um, including some fulfillment costs. So it's the cost of sending a game from the factory in China to the port in China, from the port in China to the port in the US, from the port in the US by road freight to the company's storage facility and or fulfillment shop that they might use to fulfill the game and then the cost to actually send it to the back of from inside the united states and from inside the united states small packages are uh, reasonably affordable but as soon as you try and ship something overseas it becomes much more expensive so just getting really addicted to kickstarter in the beginning i became <laughs> extremely frustrated with how Many games I wanted to back, but psychologically I, I could not bring myself to do it because I was paying effectively about 50% of the money I was paying was going towards shipping companies, not the game producer. And I was like, well, I could be supporting two game producers rather than a game producer and a shipping company. I want to support game producers and I want to be one of those people myself one day. So I've got to solve this problem. So when you look at a $30 game that has that $8, if you subtract $8 from, you know, internal shipping already worked out, let's do the maths on this. So $30 minus eight is 22 is the real value. In my view, the real value of what I should be paying on Kickstarter, excluding postage. Now add on 25, what do you say? 20 or even say it's 15, a cheap price. Now add on 15 extra international postage plus the eight that we're already paying for the US postage that's bundled in as free shipping. Then we're looking at the base unit costs 22 and the total shipping component is $23. And as soon as you get anywhere close to that psychologically, you, you have to be desperate to back a game, desperate. So what happens is many, many US creators see in their project stats Okay, I look at where my audience comes from. Okay, it's 70% US or 80% US, and I've got this, you know, 10 or 20% of international backers. So I, it's just such a small audience, I don't have to care about it. But in truth, they've made it a small audience because 
there's these barriers in the way of people backing the games. And so it, it really constrains their total backer numbers because they're just missing out on about 30% of the, the global audience for games. And I, I really wanted to try and solve that problem. <laughs> I hope that wasn't too long-winded way of saying it. So we went back to the source and just had a look at um, the logistics flow from when games were produced and where they were produced and just really looked at the options of actually just shipping things directly out from China, which is surprisingly central to most places. Obviously, it seems crazy if an American creator is making a game in China and then shipping it back to America and then pretty much shipping it back to Asia by sea at a really great expense. It just made no sense at all to do that. It was a logistic redundancy. So we just looked at all the options and we looked at about five different companies and settled on this one called Zen from China. It's kind of like a discount postage company. And I had a, a friend who was producing another small box game try them out. And uh, as you can see in the blogs that I've written about this at um, secretbasegames.com, he sent 920 games of his game 101 out through Send from China and had a total of three problems. <laughs> Two slightly dented boxes and one incorrect mail address. And everybody was happy. It cost him $3.50 US to send his game to everyone on planet Earth. And he was so ecstatic with how it all went that he said, I'll never use anybody else. And after that, I was like, okay, we're onto something here. This is, this is really a really viable solution for small to maybe small to medium size boxes because it's, it's airmail. It gets more expensive over a certain sort of weight threshold. But up until that point, it's very, 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 very competitive, even with US domestic postage prices. So definitely something people should check out if they've got a small game. And I'm still, still consistently surprised by how few people attempt to solve this shipping conundrum. Um, I've had a lot of traction with the website. And the articles that I've written, a lot of people have started looking at that. Certainly had a lot of visitors, but still see projects that obviously have missed that. Um, it's not out there enough, so it's good that I get a chance to bang on about it now. <laughs> yeah, those are some pretty good results for Send from China. Uh, do you have any other examples, other methods which people have used? The most famous one is what most people would think of as the Stonemeyer method. So that's Jamie Stegmeyer from Stonemeyer Games. And... Uh, he, very, very early in the setup of his company, was looking to create the best customer experience possible. And he recognized as well that shipping was a major part of that and that if he could grow his international audience, he'd be growing his whole audience. So he, made, he went to great pains to find the best possible ways to flatten the shipping costs for his larger games internationally. So he started off using Amazon fulfillment um, in four different centers, so in the US and Canada, and I believe in the UK and in Germany. Obviously, that doesn't cover everywhere. So, for example, Amazon doesn't, those fulfillment services don't cover Australia and the Pacific region. And there are a few gaps, I think, in South America, a few other places. So beyond that, he's investigated now. I think he has five different geographically based fulfillment options where he's tried to find the best service and the cheapest price and the best mix between those two things. And so he, for his larger box games that he makes, now has a kind of a, a network of five different fulfillment services that he uses, which is... I think fantastic that he's done that. He's fantastically paved the way and he writes up, he you know, does everything in public, he gives results. So I definitely think that between this send from China method for really small, small to small to medium box games and then the Stonemaier method, we now have two overlapping shipping methods that can really solve this problem of annoying or just putting a barrier, let's put it that way, putting a barrier in the way of international backers. And if we want to just understand the issue, International backers are about 50 to 55, uh, sorry, let's say it's about 50%. Nobody knows exactly, but um, non-US backers, let's call them, 
about 50% of the possible Kickstarter audience. And we know that because A, Board Game Geek's own stats show um, the North American audience, which is the US and Canada combined, as only about 47% of its, of its audience. So 53% of the Board Game Geek community is outside America and Canada, US and Canada. Uh, so we know the community is large, and we've seen on some projects that have lowered those barriers or removed them entirely, that the numbers start to look like this. 50% US backers, 30% EU backers, 8 to 9 to 10% Canadian backers, and then about 3 or 4% Australian backers, and then every other country is at 1%. So that's what I think the natural Kickstarter backer ecosystems like geographically. Uh, and if you lower the shipping levels, you should start to see numbers that look more like that, assuming you don't have a culturally derivative game and I'd quote an example of something like uh, the recent game Tesla versus Edison which is very much about the development of power industries in the states so it's a very US centric game and they are offered lowered shipping rates and were great for doing that but the game culturally was a very US centric game so I think maybe the, their numbers didn't pan out like that they're still quite US centric numbers but for international games, like uh, there's a game called Entropy produced by a fantastic Brisbane crew called Rain and Macon. Um, they did a wonderful Kickstarter campaign earlier this year and they offered, the, they used this shipping method that I'm recommending and they got, the, the, they got very, very close to the numbers that I'm talking about here. And so did David from 101. And the net result of that is that by leveling out those backer numbers, what it's actually telling you is that you've reached your full potential in the marketplace without the constraint of having a, a shipping barrier in the way. So it sounds like proportionally you've got less US backers, but what it really means is proportionally you've got more other backers from everywhere else, which is, of course, what every Kickstarter campaign creator should really want. Yeah, it's really important to create that support for the whole international market there and having been able to market your game, your project to all countries around the world is quite crucial in that regard. I absolutely agree. I mean, you've got to think... Some people are in Kickstarter just for the short-term thing. I'm going to make a game on Kickstarter and we'll see what happens and then I'm done. Other people are in there for a long-range view and I think you and I, you and I are like that uh, where we're like, okay, I'm going to use Kickstarter as my launch platform, which is what it's designed for, and I'm going to try and make this game sell in retail. And if you do solve that problem and get the game having a little bit of local buzz in many, many countries, then there'll be better retail demand for it as those early adopters in those countries start to talk up this game they got on Kickstarter in their, in their local environments. But if you don't have that and you've only got a, a tiny handful of people in different countries talking about your game, then the, the incentive for local distributors to try and pick up those Kickstarter games, which, you know, let's be honest, it's harder to get a game in a, in a store if it's been a Kickstarter game first, unless it's been very, very popular. So why would you make your game less popular? You're just going to reduce sales in the long run. So it's definitely part of a strategy of solving that, that, that problem and increasing the marketability of your game by increasing the number. I think what happens is if you probably sell 500 copies of a game on Kickstarter, distributors go, you know, that's nice. If you sell 1,000 copies, they go, hmm, that's nicer. If you sell 2,000 copies through Kickstarter, they start to sit up and take notice and go, well, that's more than many games sell in a whole print run, so there must be something to this game. There must be a broader demand, and they know that the pool of gamers is far, far, far larger than 2,000, but they take that indicator of the number of backers you've had more seriously once you hit that sort of 2,000 mark is my guess, because you're exceeding the size of a, of a small print run of, say, 1,500 copies of a game. So I think that's psychologically for a distributor, very, very important barrier to try and reach. 
Yeah, at the end of the day, it's what really sells, isn't it? And it's up to the distributors to decide what will sell to the retailers and in stores. Yeah, that's a given, right? I mean, you've got to have a game that's good and a game that is going to be good when people talk about it that don't care about you. And you've got to have a game that looks good on the shelf, looks good in a brochure, looks good on the internet where my, my, 90% of people are going to see it first on the internet and, and has some point of difference around it where it's not just a rehashing of several mechanics that have been used in different ways with a slightly different theme. You, you've got to have some kind of cut through, but the, the whole Kickstarter marketing thing needs to amplify that. I mean, Kickstarter is a fantastic marketing platform because you're able to deliver early adopters who are most likely to be proselytizers. You're able to deliver them an advanced copy of the game that gets them excited and makes them feel they're, they're on the cutting edge. Uh, and you can do that internationally. It's just got so, so, so many awesome things going for it. It's kind of weird that people don't see how important it is to fulfill games internationally easily and simply and cheaply. To their credit, I know many, many American creators who really, really want to do this. And it's just another one of a whole series of already very complicated things that are hard for them to manage when it's not their experience in creating a game. What would you say to project creators who think it's too much hassle, too much hard work to get it all set up? I'd say to US creators or, or any creators really is consider shipping very carefully. It's 50% of your audience that you're affecting by your decisions about how you ship your game or how you don't ship your game. And would you mess with 50% of your audience willingly? No. So have a look at it seriously. There's two broad methodologies. The Send from China one where it's better suited to lighter games. And the benefit of this is not just the money and the extra audience, but the simplicity. You've got one point of distribution, just one. You don't have to ship your games to the States first and then get it handled and do all of that. It goes from the Chinese factory, usually which is in Shenzhen for most Chinese games manufacturers, and the fulfillment companies in Shenzhen. So they pick it up from this factory, they take it to this place, they house it in a warehouse, you put in your orders, they go in an Excel spreadsheets, and then they ship it out within a week or two. And this whole nightmare of fulfillment as long as you don't have a very, very complex fulfillment project. The whole nightmare of fulfillment is handled remotely, very quickly, soon after you produce, and you're shipping your games out much, much faster than you can if you're sea freighting it from China to the USA, where there's port disputes and all sorts of stuff that might risk and slow down your game. There's customs inspections that might slow you down by two weeks and cost you another $1,000. There's no end of extra things that that can happen that get in the way of your game coming out of the factory door and being on your, on your backer's table as soon as possible. And so that's the approach we're going to try with Monstrous is we basically get the game out of the factory, we get it to send from China, and within about 10 working days at the most, I mean, it depends how, how well we do on Kickstarter, obviously, but our estimates are within 10 days, all of those games will have been sent out and they go out by airmail and they arrive on average about two weeks later using these cheap airmail methods. Some games will arrive within four or five days. So you'll be getting the game within three to four weeks at the very most of it leaving the factory. Obviously, there's the factory side of the logistics queue there but um, that you've got to sort out as well. But, I mean, how many games do you get from Kickstarter where it's like, oh, I remember this game. I backed this nine months ago. I can vaguely remember what it's all about. I'm sort of, yeah, okay. I'm not as interested in it as I was now. I've moved on to something else or stuff like that. So I think it is an advantage in saying... It's a part of the service that you can offer on Kickstarter is to say, we're going to produce your game, we're going to get it out the door as fast as possible, and we're going to use the most sensible and cheapest methods to get you the game from China to your tabletop as soon as possible. 
there's nothing wrong with that pitch. There's not, there's not a flaw in it. I mean, it's, it's a good pitch. <laughs> you want your games, you want them faster, you want them cheaper. Here it is. So that, that send from China method really, really works for that. And for the more expensive and heavier games, I, I absolutely acknowledge it gets a bit trickier here. Jamie, as I said before, Jamie Stegmaier has done a great job in trying to lay that out, show how he does it, and do that. Um, I think, to be frank, for a first-time creator, that process is still a bit daunting because you have to deal, as I mentioned, with five different fulfillment options and just dealing with one is probably stressful enough for a first-timer. So I think there's a psychological barrier right there once you get over a certain weight threshold where using the Stonemeyer method for first-time creators seems to still be a problem. And, and Jamie, I think, will acknowledge that this and he's doing everything he can to make it as easy as possible for people to follow his methods and he's providing all the advice about people to talk to, people to get in touch with. So he's doing everything he possibly can. I'm not saying anything about that, but it's just an extra step dealing with one fulfillment option to dealing with five. I can see why some first-time creators go, you know what, I'd love to do that, but I just can't. I'm in that position now where myself with my campaign where there's about 50 million additional things that I want to do with my campaign that you just don't have time for in your life on top of a full-time job. You know, you have to be realistic. So I think that's the case. But having said that, if you want your game to really go gangbusters and you're trying to lay down a pathway into the future, for marketing and reach outreach into different markets in different countries, then it, it may very well be worth the investment. And I think you can see that with Stonemeyer's stuff. He's got Jamie's got fantastic loyalty from all over the world. He just needs to now put a game up on Board Game Geek with pretty art and it goes to the top of their hotness list a year before it's produced. I mean it's nuts. That's how good his marketing is. And a big part of that is how he's treated his international market. He treats them with the respect to say, you're as valuable to me as anybody else is, and I'll do everything I can to get you games fast. And that just, you know, you won't find any critics of Jamie Stegmaier, and I think that that's a really incredibly valuable marketing edge to have over all of your competitors. So, uh, you know, hats off to him. He's done a really great job of doing that. I don't think he's done it, you know, illicitly. It's just the genuine guy that he is. <laughs> so I think it's a fantastic strategy. Definitely. We've really covered a lot in this episode, but now it's time to wrap up. Before we do, though, can give us an overview of Monstrous. What is it about? Give us your elevator pitch. Well, Monstrous is a what I call a tactical dexterity game. The general pitch is that you're a wrathful Greek god. You've got a handful of monsters, a fistful of monsters, and you've got to throw them down. And when I say throw them down, I mean literally throw them down. You stand up around a table, moving around the table, god size, and there's these large double size location cards on the table that have special powers and faith points on them. And you've got your monsters that also have special powers on them. And you've literally got to throw your monster down and hopefully have them land on the locations and possibly land on other monsters. And between the monster's powers that you throw and the location powers that you trigger when you hit and the other monster powers that you may or may not hit, you get all these effects. And so it's all about spotting combinations, just like what you would do in a collectible card game like Magic or any of the other ones. You've got to spot combinations that you want to try and play, but you've got to actually throw the card and land it on something and what exactly you land on might change the outcome slightly or significantly. So, yeah, you, your turn is to throw a card and 
see what happens. But you've got to make the right decision about the best card to throw at the best target. So it's it's very much a tactical game first, and then dexterity is kind of like a resolution mechanic for it, which I think is very interesting to a lot of people. They usually think of dexterity games as well. You just sit down and you you, you flick something simple, or you you put something on something and it either falls over or it doesn't. With this one, it's like I want this power to happen. I want this combination of powers to happen because that might get me eight points or seven points or do this thing to them and then you've got to throw it and and make that happen and i've had some good success with i guess what i'd call dexterity game skeptics who thought they wouldn't like a dexterity game who play it and go you know what this this game is so much like most of the other games that i play i'm just using dexterity to be the randomizer that i really enjoy it so i've had great success with it it's on kickstarter now and i've got some lovely reviews come in for it so i'm pretty pumped it's a deluxe art production game as well we've put everything we possibly could into making the game look as as gloriously mythic as we possibly can afford and hope to recoup that from from kickstarter so that's definitely been our strategy is use kickstarter to make the game which is effectively a pretty small box game into the most you know the glory most glorious little mythic game we possibly can seems to be working i'm pretty happy with it so far so it's it's good stuff yeah it looks great and i mean you should check out the artwork for yourselves go on to the kickstarter page just uh, go on to kickstarter search for monstrous you'll find it there and i've backed it myself it looks really interesting and i can see the strategies in there even though it's a dexterity game but it as a dexterity game it makes it really easy to learn and pick up and i imagine be a lot of fun around the table in a, in a good group it's definitely, yeah, it seems to be a bit of a hit at conventions. I had uh, Rodney Smith from Watch It Play. I pitched him the game and, and he sounded very interested. So I sent him a bunch of copies. He took it to Origins uh, in the States, which is just wrapped up. And uh, he had people trying to steal his copy of the game. And they were filming filming stuff at the con, like doing slow-mo shots and stuff like that. And uh, yeah, the, the, obviously, you know, I had about 10 copies of the game there and people playing it in different places. So it was really fun to see people standing up at conventions and, and I've certainly noticed that myself when I'm demoing it. It gets a lot of attention because what what's this game where people are standing up around the table and laughing and throwing cards and having a good time, you know, so it, it, it's got a, an edge in, in a convention setting. It's good fun. So I'm very, very happy, very, pretty proud of it and yeah, hopefully you guys can check it out. Just give it a look and if you're at all skeptical about dexterity games, just read the reviews. <laughs> so what day does the campaign end? Uh, I think we end on the 9th of July, which uh, I think that's a Thursday in most places. So, yeah. All right, so it's been great to have you on the show, Kim, and I hope this has been really interesting for all you listeners out there. And, yeah, hope you enjoyed being on the show. Yeah, thank you very much for having me. It's very interesting. Good to talk about this kind of stuff as a first-time creator who's got big ideas and <laughs> not as much experience as everyone else. <laughs> all right, cheers. Thanks, Miles. If you have any questions or ideas for topics you would like us to cover in future episodes, guess you would like to be on the show, or if you would like to be on the show yourself, please do not hesitate to email me at miles at chaospublishing.com. You can also find us on Twitter at chaospublishing, or on facebook.com forward slash chaospublishingltd. On another note, as a games publisher, we are currently on the lookout for new games to publish, if you are a games designer and have a game that you would like to see on the shelves, please review our submissions policy at chaospublishing.com and send us an email. I'll then give it a look over and provide you with my honest feedback. Thank you for listening to the Chaos Publishing Podcast. My name is Miles Ratcliffe and I hope to catch you again on the next episode.